Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession this morning is from Philippians 4.11. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. This statement by the Apostle Paul is profound, and yet it shows us something that should be, but often is not, obvious to us. Contentment is not our natural tendency. We know the Bible says to be content. We read in Hebrews, be content with such things as you have. And we think to ourselves, okay, I'll be more content. And then we act as if contentment will just happen. But what do we find instead? We find that our contentment, if any at all, is weak and shallow. When it is tested, it crumbles. Too often we are content only when things are going our way when our lives are as we think they should be. But this is not contentment at all. The smallest difficulties we face in a day are enough to show us that discontentment, covetousness, and complaining are as natural to us as weeds are to the soil. In a garden, we have no need to sow weeds. They come up naturally. They are indigenous to the earth. Likewise, we have no need to learn discontentment, and we don't need to teach ourselves to complain. But if we are to attain the precious things of life the great gain of godliness with contentment, then like labor required to obtain flowers and vegetables in a garden, we must cultivate them. Contentment will not grow in us naturally. It is our new nature, the new man created in Christ Jesus, that alone can produce it. But even then, we must be especially careful and watchful to maintain contentment. The Apostle Paul says he learned to be content. We can conclude then that he previously did not know how to be content. He had to be taught, and we know from Scripture that he learned to be content through sacrifice and suffering. It cost him to attain to such a level of contentment, and when he did, he could say, I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. He was an old man and a prisoner of Rome. So we must do away with this notion that we can be content without learning, or learn contentment without discipline. It is not a power that we can exercise naturally but actually a skill is to be acquired gradually. Let us then be willing to endure the trials and suffering of this life that we too may learn such contentment. Let us be willing to sacrifice our wants and desires in order to have the great gain of godliness with contentment. Contentment in all circumstances greatly glorifies God. To be content is to say, not my will, but your will be done. Contentment declares... I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Contentment cries out, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. God's word reminds us of our need to confess our sins. If you are willing and able, please kneel with me as we confess our sins. Friendships, when you think about friendships, um, they can be easy. When you first meet somebody, you get along, you see some things that you have in common, you're able to talk about those things, and you can hit it off fairly easy right off the bat. You might think to yourself, wow, this is really a great guy, or this is really a great gal. They're funny, they get my stupid jokes, I really like this person, right? And you can go on like that for quite some time. But eventually, if you continue on in your friendship, it always happens. Some kind of disagreement is going to arise. How or what you are doing or going to do might differ. Um, She might not have gotten one of your stupid jokes, right? Uh, You disagreed with something. And then what happens? What happens in that friendship? Well... Your anger and the tensions that are between you, they start to rise up, right? We can all relate to that, right? Okay? And then what? Or 
This might happen even within a church. You, you begin attending a congregation, and everything is going along swimmingly. I mean, you, you're just clicking right along with these people for a time, right? But then some disagreements arise. You know, maybe they don't play the kind of music that you like, or they don't pick the right songs, or it's not the right way that people greet you when you're talking and things like that. Um, when you walk into the room, nobody says, hey, there you are again, like they did at the beginning, right? And there's not enough outreach in your community, or maybe there's too much outreach, and that's all they do. And there's not enough Bible studies, and people aren't friendly enough, and why don't you have a prayer meeting? And there's not enough community and fellowship. There's too much community and fellowship, right? And then what? Well, then in those circumstances, right, you have a choice, are we going to trust God? Are we going to let love cover a multitude of sins? Are we going to value relationships and community more than our agendas or our opinions? Or are we going to throw all that away for the sake of our pride or our, our own thoughts or our ideas and then just go storming off? Right? Those, those are the choices that are before us. We're going to break off a friendship, leave a church. And I'm not talking about for important doctrinal theological reasons that you might leave a church. You're just leaving because there's petty reasons there. You're not getting along with people like you once did. Then what happens? A relationship is broken over really trivial matters. We call that, when that happens, when we have a friend that happens to are we are the friend that does that, right? We have a term for that or a phrase for that. We call them fair-weathered friends, right? Fair-weathered friends. That's a friend who's there when all's nice and happy and things are going okay, but when things get tough, I'm out of here. I'm out of here. That's a fair-weathered friend, right? Well, that's what happened to Jesus a lot. That happened to Jesus a lot. You see, it's easy to follow Jesus when all is going well. Right? It's easy to follow Jesus when all things are going well. When he's healing the sick, he's giving sight to the blind, he's casting out demons, he's healing lepers, he's raising up paralytics. You want to be around Jesus then, right? But what happens when Jesus doesn't leave it there? Right? What happens when he teaches what it really means to follow him, to feed upon him? To feed upon him because he's the bread of heaven which has come down. Right? That's the reality of following Jesus. That we must eat of him and drink of his blood. Right? And there's a lot of significance to that. He's that important and necessary to our lives. Without him, a person dies is what he's saying. Right? You lose your sustenance if you're not in him. If you're not partaking of him. And what happens when Jesus goes there in, in John chapter 6? Right? When, people go, when Jesus goes there to that point, right? This is all in the context of him feeding the 5,000, okay? They're, they're all excited about Jesus then. I mean, he's got bread to give us, right? Well, what happens is people stop leaving him when Jesus goes there. When he says, I am true bread and I am true drink and you must ingest me you must have me people depart don't they read, read John chapter 6 see what Jesus always does is to bring us to consider and count the cost of being his disciples <coughs> excuse me count the cost of being his disciple okay when you're in Matthew chapter 8 and that's where we're going to be today when you look in, in chapter 8 there, in verses 18 <laughs> and following, okay, that whole context right there is about what it means to be a disciple. Okay? And Jesus says, here, count the cost. You want to know what it's like to be a disciple of mine? He says, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but I don't have anywhere to lay my head. You ready to do that? Are you ready to be that guy? Mr. Scribe, okay? What happens when he says later on in, in Matthew, when he says, you leave father, mother, sister, and brother, wife, and children for my sake, that I, the Lord Jesus Christ, have preeminence in your life. What happens then? 
right? We're down with, we're good with, you know, being around him when he's healing and doing all those spectacular things. But when he starts talking like this, then it gets a little more uncomfortable, doesn't it? If you're my disciple, understand Jesus saying that while they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you too, okay? Following Jesus doesn't mean it's going to be easy, all right, following Jesus doesn't mean it's going to be an easy road. That it's going to be a walk in the park. It's going to be a cakewalk. Okay? No, Jesus often takes us right into the storms of life. Right into the storms of life. Here in Matthew 8, he takes us right to the root of our problems and our sins. That's what he does with the scribe who wants to follow him. That's what he does with the disciple that doesn't want to follow him yet. Right? Just before where we are today. Okay? He takes us to our root problems and sins and he deals with people individually. What is your root problem? What is your root sin? And he's going to deal with that in your life. And what are you going to do with that? Right? He does that with the rich young ruler, doesn't he? Right? He goes right to the root of his problem. And that's what Jesus always does with us. He takes us right to the root of our problems and our sins. And when he does so, what he does is show us ourselves. He holds up a mirror to ourselves. When we get uncomfortable with the scriptures, when we get uncomfortable with what Jesus is, is saying to us, he's holding up a mirror and he's saying, look. Look at yourself here. Okay? Look. Look, what's, what's your reaction? What's your response? Our reactions and responses show forth our faith or our lack of faith. And even more important, when the Lord Jesus Christ acts providentially, Jesus shows us who he really is. He shows us who he really is. Okay, So he shows us our root problems. He shows us where we're struggling and everything. But then he always shows us who he is. Okay, And that's important. In the midst of the storms of life, he shows us his character and his power and his authority. And he calls us. He demonstrates to us that we must not be fair weather disciples. We must not be fair-weather disciples, fair-weather Christians. We must weather the storm with faith, trusting in this providential care. Okay? Now, let's read the text for today, which is Matthew chapter 8, 23-27. Now, when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him, and suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea, so that the boat was covered with the waves, but he was asleep. Then his disciples came to him and woke him, saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. But he said to them, Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? And then he arose, and he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. So the men marveled, saying, Who can this be, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for this text that you have given and that you have inspired. That it is indeed inerrant, without error, and that you have given this to Matthew to give to us today. And Lord, we thank you that we are able to read it, to contemplate it. And Lord, we pray that it would come into us and, and dwell within us and change us and mold us and shape us. Oh Lord, May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Amen. So as we go into the text today, just to catch up, remember the context and all of those things, because it all is playing together, it's coming together in this. Jesus has taught with authority. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he's taught with authority, and now he's acting with authority. As you go into the, uh, after the Sermon on the Mount, he's showing forth his authority, he's Stacking up witnesses, if you will, of authority. And so he's acting with authority now. He's healed the leper. He's healed the centurion servant. He's healed Peter's mother-in-law. He's cast out demons. He's healed all that were sick, that were brought to him. And so he's just stacking up witness after witness. You want, by two or three witnesses, right? 
you establish things. And so he's just stacking up witness after witness, hundreds of witnesses, if you will, right? I don't know how many people he healed, but he's healing a lot of people, and every one of those is a witness to his power and to his authority, right? So he's healing all of these people. He's doing all of that. He's casting out demons. Each one of those is demonstrating that he's powerful and almighty over all these things, and he's backing up his authoritative teaching, and people are flocking to him. They're coming around him. They're coming to him. And as all of these gather around him and press in on Jesus, he knows the hearts of all men, we're told in Scripture. He knows the hearts of all men and knows what they're trying to do. They're going, as we see in chapter 6 of the book of John, he knows that they're going to try and put him up as king. They want to take him and establish him and force his hand and make him king. If we can put him on the throne, he's going to have to deal with those Romans. He's king. Right? Well, Jesus doesn't want, he's not going to be controlled by the masses, by the crowds. You know, that's just exactly what some of us would want, right? We want to be king. Yeah. Not Jesus. He's not going to be controlled by somebody else's agenda. And so he knows all the hearts of men. He knows what they're doing. He knows the things that they're plotting. And he decides as all of these people gather around him, to sail to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. He's going to get in a boat and get out of there. Right? And so he and his, his disciples are on their way down to the docks as they're going through Capernaum. They're on their way down to the docks, and this is where a scribe shouts out to him, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. Right? And so Jesus stops for a moment, and he addresses him, and then a reluctant disciple says, there's nothing, there, there's, there's something a little more important than you, Jesus. And that's my, my family, that's my father. And Jesus says, follow me. But, but Jesus, hold, hold on a second, I gotta, I gotta go attend to this. Jesus says, follow me now, right? So he's telling one, <laughs> you know, foxes have holes, birds there have nests. I have nowhere to lay my head. He's discouraging him from following. And the other guy, he's saying, follow me. And on both of those, he's going to that root problem that we're talking about. So this is on his way down to the docks. And so there's this theme running through here of following Jesus. One guy wants to follow him, the other guy doesn't want to follow him. It's the theme of following Jesus here. And as he's going down to the docks, that's what, it's, that, that's the, what keeps coming up. Okay, Counting the cost of what it means to follow Jesus. They cost. You must be devoted. It's not for fair-weathered folks. No, my disciples must now follow me, trust me, get into the boat. Well, they think that they're just having a good old time, right? We're just going to go down for this boat ride with Jesus across to the other side. It's going to be great. The party is continuing on through the city. Healing's going on and all of those things. We're going down with Jesus, and we're going to get into the boats with him, and we're going to go across to the other side, and we're going to keep on all this stuff. It's going to be great. Don't miss that little word, followed, here in the text. Right? Again, the scribe said, I'll follow you. Jesus says to the disciple, follow me. Right? And now here his disciples followed Jesus. You see that in the first verse there. His, Jesus, his disciples followed Jesus into the boat. Right? We're sailing to the other side. Now Jesus was wiped out. Right? He's, this is a demonstration of his full humanity here. Okay? He's tired. Yes, he's fully God, but he's also fully man. And he's tired. He's wiped out. And so he's been working hard. He goes into the back of the boat and he lays down on a pillow and he goes to sleep. These boats on the Sea of Galilee were probably about 25 to 30 feet in length. They've actually discovered one archaeologically and, and pulled it up off the, the bottom of the sea. And so they, they have, and there's several of those that they found over the years, and so they have a pretty good idea of what this boat's like. It's 25 to 30 feet long, about 10 feet wide. Okay? A decent sized boat. Okay? So that's what it's like. They, they can have about a dozen people on one of these boats and a good catch of fish. And a number of these disciples were fishermen, as we know, right? 
They knew the sea. They knew what the Sea of Galilee was all, all about. They weren't chickens. They weren't people that weren't used to battling the waves of the sea and all of those things, right? So they knew what was going on. They knew what it was like to sail even at night when the fishing was best. And so they get into this boat. And it's probably not a dilapidated boat. It's being used. It's a, it's a serviceable boat. As it went further out into the sea, though, verse 24, we read, Suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea so that the boat was covered with waves. Okay? Now, storms could rise quickly on the sea, on the Sea of Galilee, because it was down about 600 feet below the surrounding uh, countryside, below sea level. Okay, surrounded by mountains, and when warm, moist air rose off the lake, colder air rose, you know, rushed down. That's that rising warm air and sinking cold air. And as those two react together, they begin to swirl in all of those things, and they make these tempests out on the lake. And it's something that they were used to. It would embroil the Sea of Galilee, and so these storms could rise up very quickly. But this was an unusual tempest. This was an unusual tempest. It was frightening even for these seasoned fishermen. Right? That's how bad it is out there. I mean, this isn't like your normal tempest that you have out on the Sea of Galilee. This is so frightening that these guys who are seasoned fishermen who have spent their life out on this lake are absolutely freaking out. They think they're going to die. Right? They think that they're going to die. It's such, a, it's, it's such an unusual tempest that Matthew uses the word for this. The Greek word for this, this particular tempest is seismos. It's where we get seismic graph, right? It's like an earthquake, right? That's what it feels like out on the sea. It's like an earthquake going on out there. It's rocking all over the place. Violently shaking the waves in the sea, looking as though they're going to capsize. The waves are filling up their ship. And Jesus is in the back of the boat, sleeping. Right? He's still asleep. He was in the stern, asleep on a pillow, says Mark, in chapter 4. Again, he was tired. He's a man of of work, and, and he's resting from his labors. But you see, this also shows us that Jesus is a man of peace. Right? He's not a man of worry. He's a man of peace. He's at peace with God. He's full of serenity. He's trusting his Father in heaven. He has no fears. Right? He has no fears. There's no sin that he has to stir him or disrupt his rest. He was truly at peace. And he could lay in that back of the boat, even amidst a storm, on a pillow, sleeping. His disciples, on the other hand, they're beside themselves. They thought they're going to be on the verge of death, that we're on the verge of death, that we're going to die. And so they wake up Jesus, call out to him, Lord, save us, we are perishing. Save us, Jesus. (laughs) Have mercy on us. Now, in our fears, it can be good that we call out to Jesus. But here, his followers, his disciples, his students... They have not quite understood who Jesus is yet. Right? Despite all the stuff that they've been witnessing him doing, right? Despite all the healings, all the teaching that he's done, and now the the affirmations over and over again of his authority, they still haven't quite gotten it yet. I mean, it's fine and easy to trust in the Lord when all's going well, right? Remember that. When we can experience amazing things like the healing and the casting out of demons. But when things get tough, that's when we see ourselves for who we truly are. When the bucket gets tipped, what spills out? Right? When the bucket gets tipped, what spills out? Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. Except in the scary wind-swept sea. Right? Not going to do that. And what comes out of all of these disciples is fear. Okay, fear. They haven't really seen Jesus has all authority. That he has true authority. And by that authority, he shows that he has power over death. Right? He, he, he healed the leper. 
I mean, the leper was as good as a dead man. That's what the Jews thought. He's a walking dead man. And they heal him, right? He raises a paralytic. He's cast out demons. He's got power over all of those things. He has power over sickness and life and even over the spiritual forces of darkness. But now when things get scary, they lose it. They forget about the power of Jesus. And so before he deals with the weather, the first thing that Jesus does is get up off his bed and he looks at his disciples and he asks them, why are you fearful? Oh, you men of little faith, why are you fearful? He's reproving them. And he's bringing them to their basic need first. He's bringing them to their root cause first. Their root problem. And that's their faith in him. Their need for faith in him. You of little faith. Faith that Jesus can deal with whatever comes up in life. Look what I've already been doing. Don't you trust me here than in this little storm out on the Sea of Galilee? Haven't you seen what I've been doing? That's what he's asking him. You think I'm powerless to do something? Are you so dull? Fear has driven out much of their faith. Not all of it, right? He says, oh, you have little faith. But there's tremendous uncertainty and fear in these men. And so Jesus refocuses their attention. And where does he refocus that attention? On himself. Right? On himself. He reproves them first, and then he saves them. He reveals himself to them now in a tremendously powerful way. One commentator said, Our faith is most strong when we focus on Christ. So no matter what's happening in your life, your faith is most strong when you're focusing on Jesus. Okay? When you know what he is and who he is. And that's exactly what Jesus does. He refocuses their attention on who he is and what character and power that he has. And so we read, then he arose and he rebuked the winds and the sea and there was a great calm. You get that? Mark 4 says, then he arose and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. Now, a whole bunch of you kids have a little drawing, right? You see a little drawing, and it's got a picture of a boat on it? You see that? Maybe some of you picked that up. <laughs> right? It's calm out there, right? You see Jesus' hands raised. It's calm on that sea. It went from a raging seismos, earthquake-type sea, where everything's raging around them, the waves are filling the boat, to a perfect calm. perfect calm. One moment this wind is blowing and the next moment it's just peace. See it become a placid like a sheet of glass. And I think that's what your picture shows you. Imagine that. The storm didn't gradually taper off. And that's what happens with storms, right? If you've ever been in a storm, you watch it sort of gradually taper off, right? Over time. Or few minutes maybe, or over you know, a few hours, you can watch that storm taper off. But it takes time to do that. That's not what happens here. It's calm. Immediately, there's a still. And it was calmed by the word of Christ, right? Be still. For just a moment, you see, the glory and the majesty and the power of the incarnate Son of God shone through the veil. They saw the creator of that wind and sea standing before them. And what was the disciples' response to that? 
Well, Matthew, we read, So the men marveled, saying, Who can this be, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Right? Mark says, And they feared exceedingly. You see, you get something a little different from Mark, and that's what's so great about having the three Gospels, the, you know, the four Gospels, the three synoptic Gospels, you know. And you see the, those, those things from different perspectives. And it's so rich to look at all three of those. And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? And Luke says, And they were afraid. And they marveled, saying to one another, Who can this be? For he commands even the wind and the water, and they obey him. The veil has been taken off for a moment, and they see his glory. Just like the transfiguration that we read about last week, right? They see his glory for a moment. They marveled. They feared exceedingly. They were afraid and marveled. They saw Jesus beyond the veil of flesh, and it was revealed to them his majesty and his holiness and power. And they saw the creator who was standing before them, who said, be still. And the sea and the waves obeyed him immediately. Now, what's so amazing about this is others might try to heal and cast out demons, right? We see examples of that in, in throughout scriptures, right? Where other people are, right? You got Elijah and, and Peter and Paul and others are doing those things, casting out demons, healing the sick and, and things like that, right? But who in the world could command the wind and the sea, right? I mean, Paul is out in the raging storm, right? On the, on the Mediterranean Sea, he doesn't stand up in the front of the boat and say, hey guys, don't worry about this, I got this, right? Be still! And it's all still, right? He doesn't do that. He's not the creator. That's why they're so amazed. They're looking at, who is this? Who is this Jesus? Jesus had authority in himself to command the wind and the sea. And really, this whole scene that we see here is another fulfillment of the scriptures. You know that? Anybody know what scripture fulfills? If you look at Psalm 107. Psalm 107. This is what we read in Psalm 107. You, you, you listen to this and then think about what Jesus just does here. Those who go down in the ships in the sea, who do business on great waters, they see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he commands and raises the stormy wind. He's the one that's in control of those things. He raises the stormy wind, which lifts up the waves of the sea. They mount up to the heavens. They go down again to the depths. Their soul melts because of trouble. They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man. They're at their wit's end. Why? Why are they staggering like drunken men? Because the waves are so raging and horrible, they can't keep their balance in their boat, and they're tossing all over the place. And they're at their wit's end. And then they cry out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brings them out of their distress. He calms the storm so that its waves are still. Then they are glad because they are quiet. So he guides them to their desired haven. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. I mean, does that not sound like this exact account that Jesus has? This is a fulfillment of the scriptures. Jesus is showing the fulfillment of what is being talked about here in Psalm 107. And that's the response that we are to have in response to the storms that we see at the end of this psalm. That the Lord our God brings our way in his providence. Right? He, he brings these things to us and then he shows us and reveals his power to us. And he shows us his providence. And what's the response to be? Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, right? Thanksgiving to the Lord for his goodness. The one who commands the stormy wind and the one who calms the same wind and wave, thank him. You thank him because he's revealing himself to you in the storm and the wind and in the calm when he calms those things. Thank him. Thank him. He's teaching us his power. 
He's teaching us our utter dependence upon him. He's teaching us patience and forbearance in the storms of life. He's teaching us to trust in him by faith. He's showing us our lack of faith sometimes. And where we might need to repent. And you know what? That's a mercy from him. That's a mercy from him. Every time he points us to our root problem, our root sin, that's a mercy from him. He's showing where we lack. He's trying to bring us, he's bringing us to repentance. In addition to thanksgiving, we are likewise taught the proper response that we never want to forget. Fear God, not creation. Fear God, not creation. Fear Him alone. This fear in the presence of Christ Jesus had happened to, to Peter before, right? Luke 5. When Jesus is coming down, he's got by the lake again and, and all of that, and he's going to teach the people. And so they're pressing in around him, so he decides to step out, get onto a boat, and it just so happens to be Peter's boat, right? And he says, push out from land a little bit, right? And he sat down and he teaches the people, and then he says to, to, to Peter, to Simon Peter after this, he says, you know what, Peter, launch your boats and go back out and cast your nets overboard. And Peter's like, come on, Jesus, we've been out all night long. We're tired, right? Master, we've toiled all night. We've caught nothing. And then something happens with Peter. And he says, nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. Right? You remember what happens? They catch this rich catch. I mean, it's so much, it's like sinking the ship that they got to call to the others to come and help them out, right? And what's Peter's response when their boat began to sink with this catch of fish? When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. He sees in this Jesus' power, his authority, his holiness, and he recognizes his sin in the catching of fish. Right? And he says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Right? And he and all that were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which, which, which were taken. And so also were James and John, the son of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, as Simon's falling down on his knees and saying, Depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. He says to, to Simon, Don't be afraid. Do not be afraid. From now on, you're going to catch men. And so when they had brought their boats in, they forsook all and followed Jesus. Right? Isn't that sweet? Isn't that beautiful? See, Peter knew the fear of God, and yet it keeps coming up in Peter over and over again, just like it does with us. But Jesus isn't trying to squash us. He's trying to show us our root problems, our need for him. You see here, Peter was confronted by the living God, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, as the song says, right? The incarnate deity, and Peter feared we see that throughout scripture when people are confronted by the holy God, right? We see Isaiah, right? Woe is me, I'm undone in Isaiah 6. I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm torn apart by your presence, your holiness, O God. John has that response in Revelation 1. The, the, the disciple that laid his head upon Jesus' breast, right? Is confronted by the holiness of Jesus Christ, right? By this vision of Christ. And he falls down on his face before Jesus. Right? In fear. In his holiness. We see it with Paul on the road to Damascus. The disciples in the boat to the other side of the lake. They see his holiness. And likewise, if we want to be wise and to be used by God... We'll see these accounts and understand the holiness and power and might and providence of God and fear Him alone over all that goes on under the sun. Fear Him alone. 
And in that humility, he lifts us up and he encourages us, encourages us not to fear the things of this world, no matter what it is. No matter what it is. Right? No matter what it is. And there's a lot of things that can cause fear, aren't right there? Right? How much do we fear? I remember sitting in O'Hare Airport with my wife, and we're flying to Scotland, and we're leaving all our children here, and we're looking at each other and saying to each other, are we nuts? Have we lost our mind? Right? That's fear. Right? When we have those things, that's fear. We're not trusting God for everything. Life, health, peace, And even if he brings a storm, right, that's for our good. So what can we learn from this? You know, this account really teaches us to trust in the providence of God. That he controls all that takes place. Sickness and health. In the storms of life and in the good times, he is there with us when it's stormy and when it's bright and sunshiny and all the healing is taking place. And it's good and right that we can call out to the Lord when we're fearful, but we are to call out to him in faith. In faith. Trusting him in whatever happens, and then thanking him. Right? Thanking him. And when we understand his providence, we find comfort in that he is in control of all things. Right? He is in control of all things. And then we don't need to struggle against him or shake our fists at him when things don't go our way. Because we're trusting him. Our family plays a game called Phase 10. Anybody play Phase 10? Okay. So we play this game, and you gotta get all the, you got 10 phases that you gotta get through, and you got. A different hand of cards that you're supposed to get. And you can't move on until you get that hand of cards. And then you can move to the next phase. Okay? And you go through the phases. Well, cards, right, are very frustrating because you don't always get the hand that you want, that you need, right? And so you sit there and you get start getting upset and you get grinding in your, in your soul and all that because I'm not getting my hand. I want my hand. Right? I need this hand to move on. Right? My wife is always gently reminding us that this is not phase 10. It's providence 10. Right? Because God gives those cards. Right? And he's teaching us, even in that stupid game, <laughs> right? the providence of God. That we can trust in him. It's him that gives the lots. Right? It's him that is doing those things. And it teaches us not to shake our fist in the face of God. Right? God controls those things. You see, he's the one that's given you that hand. Don't get angry at him. Or you may be shaking your fist at God, even in a game like that. See, he knows every sparrow that falls to the ground. He knows the grass of the field. He knows every hair on your head. And he knows every storm on the seas. And he controls every storm on the sea. He controls every hand that you have. He controls those sparrows because he is God. He is the sovereign, holy, majestic, providential God. You know what? And he's with you as a Christian in all of those things. Calvin says that when we understand God's providence and sovereignty, it is a remedy for anger and impatience. You see, when we understand God's providence and sovereignty, it's a remedy for anger and impatience. It helps us in adversities because we can know that God's, God wills it. It is God's will. Right? And we trust him. Daniel Doriani, another commentator, says, Christ Jesus has power over every storm, but he does not calm Every storm. And that's what we need to get. He has power over every storm, but he doesn't calm every storm. 
we're all going to die of something eventually. Right? It's, it's just the way the sinful world is because we read about that this morning. Adam, right? Adam and his sin brought death into this world. We're all going to die of something. Is that the worst that you can think of? No. Going to hell is the worst thing that we can think of. Not trusting Christ is the worst thing. Right? Do we trust God or do we shake our fist at him in the storm? Do we believe he's doing these things for our good or are we just angry at him because life isn't easy and it's not going our way? You see, our response to that, to the storms of life, teaches us where we need to repent. Teaches us where we need to repent and trust him. We need to be humble about all that takes place. He never says, follow me, and it's going to be easy for you. But you know what? That's the false gospel that many of us want to hear. And that's the false gospel that's out there in the world. And so when storms come in your life and you believe that false gospel, where are you? Where are you left? You're left with a God that is impotent to do anything. Is that, is that true? Is that what we see here in the scriptures? Who wants to follow a God like that? That has no power over any of those things. We never see in any of the scriptures where Jesus says, follow me and it's going to be easy. No, what Jesus says is foxes have holes, birds have nests, but I, and by my extension, my disciples have nowhere to lay their heads. Right? If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. He who desires to save his life must lose it. When you know all those verses, what do they mean? They mean it's going to be easy, cakewalk, right? None of those verses sound like easy road, does it, right? We're just up at Cabrafe, and one of the slopes is called easy road, right? Because that's the easiest one on the hill. That's, Jesus is taking us to the black diamond, okay? He's taking us to the black diamond. But here's the great thing. Christ Jesus is with us in every storm, and because he's almighty... He makes our burdens light. Because He's Almighty, He makes our burdens light. When we're in the storms of life, so often that is the time when we are forced to draw near to Him. Right? When we're in the storms of life, that forces us to draw near to Him. Even sometimes when He seems so distant from us and we're crying out to Him, God, where are you? Right? He seems so distant from us. He's not. He feels distant from us because we're in that storm. But afterwards, we see that he was just there with us in the boat. He was there. And he's saying to us, why are you fearful? Why are you fearful? Right? Can't you see how I navigate you through the stormy seas? Right? How often have we been through some storm of life and we see at the end, I see God's hand in all of that. I see how God was working in there. I see the things that I needed to learn in that situation. I see my lack of faith. And even though this life is full of storms and tempests, we always need to remember that Jesus Christ has all power over the greatest storms. That is the worst storm in our life, right? He has power over that. Sin and death. Right? Those are the worst storms that we're going to face. Sin and death. And he has conquered those. So what do we have to fear? Right? What do we have to fear if he's conquered our greatest storm? Sin and death. He's conquered those. So what do we have to fear? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not on your own understanding or the understanding of our culture or any of those things, right? But in all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. See, our focus 
needs to be on Christ. You see, when the disciples focused their eyes on Christ, they marveled. They marveled. And we need to marvel too. We need to fear Him, fear Him alone, and marvel and behold His glory and His holiness and His power and His might and His providence and all of those things so that we do not lose faith even in the storms of life. Look to Him. Look to Christ. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank You for this text and we thank You for Your goodness and mercy to us. Oh Lord, we thank You that when tough things arise in our lives that we are able to find our confidence and our power in you because you are almighty we sing the almighty power of God oh Lord we praise you for your glorious strength and might and we look to you and you alone may you be exalted oh Lord our God Lord as we your people we now pray Come to the Lord's table. And as I said at the, the end of the sermon, you know, one of our greatest storms in life, the greatest storm in life is sin and death. We see here at the Lord's table that He solves those issues. We see what Jesus has done, that His body was broken for us, and His blood shed on our behalf to take care of our greatest need, which is the need for salvation, to overcome sin and death and help. So we invite to the Lord's table all those who are baptized and under the authority of Christ and his body, the church, by eating the bread and drinking the wine with us, you are acknowledging that you are a sinner without hope except in the sovereign mercy of God and that you're trusting in Christ Jesus alone for your salvation. So look to Christ. Look to Christ alone. He is our true bread and our true drink. Take him in. Christ's body was broken for us. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I dot com. Again, thank you and blessings.